0: And it all comes down to this. Two on, two out. Bottom of the ninth. The farmers lead by one. Full count. Here comes the play at the plate. And it's the Ag
1: View Pitch. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Ag View Pitch. And today we're going to have a conversation on the grain markets from a macro and micro perspective. And we've got our guest here today, Mark Welch with Texas A and M. Who is the grain marketing economist at Texas A and M? How's it going, Mark?
0: Uh, Very good, Chris. Uh, Good to be with you today.
1: Great. It's good. uh, Good to have a conversation and uh, talk a little bit about kind of what's going on in the in the market. There's a lot of big ticket items that we don't often talk about in the markets. You know, we focus a lot on things at the farm gate. We focus a little bit on what we hear on the radio and what we hear analysts talking about and that type of thing. And so what we wanted to do today first is just kind of have you go into a little bit of the, um, things that are impacting the market or, or maybe in the future impacting the market as we look at some of the, the macro economic impacts. So do you want to go ahead and, and kind of start, start talking to us a little bit about, uh, what you're watching, watching with the macro side of things.
0: At, uh, And, again, uh, I think a lot of times we we don't uh, yes put that connection between a lot of things that we hear more on the macroeconomic level to the the impact and the influence it has of what we see at the farm level. But uh, I think there are a couple of of things I'd like to point to starting off that that really highlight that relationship. And and one is if you go back and look at uh, U.S. net farm income going back to the mid-1960s, and look what happened to net farm income during recessions, and and many times we feel like, well, maybe you know what happens at the farm level economy is kind of separate from the general economy. Well, that's not really the case. If you look at net farm income over the last seven recessions, uh, net farm income goes down during a recession, and, and so watching those economic factors that uh, would, would lead an economy or, or cause an economy to dip into recession. And then again, those factors that would pull us out matter a lot to, uh, to net farm income numbers when you look at the U.S. And, and then a little more broadly speaking, one I think of the most dynamic and interesting relationships that I've seen between uh, influencing grain consumption globally, if you go back uh, over the last 20 years, And look at the relationship between global per capita grain consumption. And when I create this chart, when I talk about grains, I'm talking about food grains and feed grains. And I even throw soybeans in there because it's such an important part of uh, the U.S. agricultural production mix. So you take grain use per capita globally. So how much we consume per person uh, on an annual basis and look at the growth of that. And that's been on a steep rise since the early 2000s. And and so trying to find something that would support or explain uh, that relationship, there's a strong correlation between global, that increase in global per capita grain consumption and increases in average incomes, particularly if you look at the emerging and developing economies around the world. So look at growth in average incomes in places like Brazil and Russia, India. China, Mexico, and then then a cluster of of Southeast Asian nations. uh, And I I pull in uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, Thailand, and Malaysia. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, you saw those economies begin to grow very, very rapidly. You saw incomes begin to grow on a per capita basis in those countries. The middle class began to expand. They had increases in disposable income. And as those economies expanded, as people had more money to spend, we saw that money being directed to things like feed and food and fuel and fiber. You know things that are really really important uh, to U.S. agriculture. And and you think of well, why? What was that pivot point that occurred in in the uh, late '90s and early 2000s? And and I think we can think about how how the the global labor picture and technology picture begin to change if you think about the technology adaptation from the late '90s to the early 2000s. And just think about that that cell phone that you've got on your hip, uh, personal computers, the Internet, uh, you know, so much that explosion and technological capacity and capability. Combine that with with workforces that at that time had relatively low wage rates and people that were willing to work really, really hard. And you saw productivity increase. GDP went up and then that translated to, to average income increases in that part of the world. So we can look at some of those broader measures. Of economic activity like GDP and it matters a lot at the farm level when you look at how it's driven global grain consumption.
1: You're creating a whole bunch of questions from me here I guess (laughs) I don't know where to start with the questions I guess but um, you know when you look at the uncertainty that we have right now because of COVID essentially worldwide and kind of a big deal obviously here right now in the U S and that uncertainty that, that that creates and you hear people talking about inflation. And so I'm throwing a bunch of different things out here, I guess, Mm -hmm. but let's start with the uncertainty component first. I mean, if, if there's a direct correlation, you're saying, you know, a lot of times we hear people talk about, well, the farm economy is the opposite of the, of the general economy. And you're kind of disputing that. And so if, if, if we continue to see pressure on the um, the ag economy because of the general economy, um, but let's say inflation starts to kick in, isn't isn't there a reason why maybe we have some hope that maybe we do diverge from the general economy, or do you think that it still runs hand in hand?
0: I think what we would we would look for, even though there may be some short-term uh, divergence, particularly around maybe costs, or prices that that overall those those things would tend to support one another. Uh, let's take inflation uh, for example. Uh, you know, inflation over the last uh, gosh, you know, ten years has been very muted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just hasn't been a, a major factor in an in an economic discussion. And and um, you know, I'm, I can remember the seventies and eighties uh, when uh, you know inflation rates were running well above ten percent. And uh, you know interest rates, 18 percent, you know, just wild runaway inflation, and and now we have a generation uh, that that can't even imagine uh, such things, and, uh, and and so how does that you know impact us moving forward? Well, certainly there are some positive aspects to to very low inflation, uh, you know, with, in terms of the pressure on borrowing cost, and maybe it holds down some of our, our input costs, and we're seeing the Federal Reserve move in the current environment to drop interest rates to virtually zero from the, the borrowing that takes place between banks that the Federal Reserve uh, manages. And then, of course, that translates then to lower interest rates, whether you're, you're operating loan or an equipment loan or, or, or whatever, a mortgage loan, whatever it works to the general economy. So that lowers that, that interest rate, and you would think that's good for economic activity, and that would be true. But the problem is we need a little inflation uh, now. Right. And the Fed has just announced that they're going to be a little more lax in their interpretation of their inflation guidelines. Uh, uh, Chair uh, President Jerome Powell has just announced that while 2 percent is kind of the, the long run uh, target for inflation in the U.S. economy, they're looking now, rather than 2 percent as a hard line, maybe a 2 percent average over time, so if we've been below two percent for a period of time, they might let inflation run up higher than that in in order to create some and stimulate some economic activity. And you think, well, how does that work to, uh, to stimulate activity? Well, the interest rate is uh, is tied to other aspects of the economy in that when we can charge higher interest rates, it means there's more economic activity going on. Uh, higher interest rates. Also provide some incentive uh, for savings when interest rates are virtually zero. Uh, you know that that hurts many sectors of our economy. When you have a, an interest rate that's uh, uh, a little bit higher, it gives the Fed more tools that if there is an economic problem, well, they can then lower those rates back down to provide some stimulus to for the economy. So, uh, and and a, just a, a specific feature of that, take gasoline prices. Uh, you well know, for many of us we think uh, you know cheap gas is a good thing but gasoline can also be a barometer of, of economic activity when we're using gas and we're burning oil we're usually doing stuff and making stuff and that's tied directly to economic activity economic growth and economic expansion and and so yes low prices for, for fuel are that's a good thing for a while but if it continues it reflects uh that there's not a lot of other things going on in the economy that gonna are going to support the demand side of what we do in agriculture. Maybe it keeps our input costs down, but we need something on the, the demand side, on the consumer side, on our, our customer side to uh to increase their desires and ability to, to pay and, and have that demand for our products. So so it's all tied together. So a little inflation uh is is a good thing. In terms of it reflects then a resurgence of economic activity, and uh, and, and so that's uh, I think what the Fed is announcing that, you know, if we see their other tools start to work, if the economy does start to pick up, that inflation getting to two percent, they're not necessarily going to try to put a lid on it right now. They may let that run, and and that's not a bad thing for agriculture if if we were to see that kind of pressure. So that would be one of the factors moving forward uh, that, uh, would be positive, uh, for the uh, agricultural sector, you know, a, a little bit of inflation would, uh, would, would help us at the farm gate.
1: Plus keeping the interest rates low for land values and that type of thing is, is an additional added value there too, right?
0: There you go. Again, for a period of time, if it extends too long, or even if it, conditions were to get to the point that we see deflation in the economy, uh, then then that becomes a, a serious economic problem. Because then there's no incentive for people to buy now. Why should I spend money today if it's going to be cheaper tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And and then that tends to drag down the entire economic picture. Yeah, that land is perhaps more affordable because your interest rates are low, but what are you going to sell what you produce off that land for? Where is it going to go? What's the final product that that land, what value is it really generating? Yeah, you got it at a good price and at a low interest rate, but it still has to generate some kind of income and economic activity and and very, very low interest rates are not conducive to that over the long term. And, and so that's why in kind of the macro picture that uh, maybe that short term gain is, is nice to take advantage of, but. If it continues for a longer period of time, uh, it paints a more negative picture for the agricultural sector and and what we're doing with that land rather than positive over the longer term.
1: So not to ask you to necessarily prognosticate here, but um, on the same token, if we look at um, interest rates going up at a certain point, what can the government afford in terms of interest rates when you look at the trillions of dollars that we have spent and that we are likely to spend yet how much what, what level of interest rate can the can the country afford
0: you know and that's a, a really i think a, a vital question uh, again we've talked about low inflation and and uh, until just recently coming out of the great recession of 2007 8 and 9 where interest rates were starting to creep back up a little bit. Uh, interest rates were very, very low for a period of five, six, seven years. And, and of course, now we're back to very, very low interest rates again. And and you think of the, the positive aspect of government spending in that we are now, as you're mentioning, uh, a lot of government assistance, uh, government bailout programs uh, in response to the coronavirus, uh, some emergency uh, allocations that are made to many sectors in the economy. Well, Now's a good time to do that from the standpoint of it's cheap to do. If we're borrowing the money to do it, which we are, uh, we're borrowing it at very, very low interest rates. The problem becomes if we were to see then the cost of borrowing for the U.S. economy to increase and those interest rate charges as part of the federal budget and contributing to the the national deficit, uh, if those start to escalate, uh, certainly a sharp rise in interest rates would be, uh, you know, very uh, negatively impact the, uh, the the budget situation uh, of the, of the government, and and so you know if we're going to do it, you know now's the time to do it when the interest rates are cheap. But as we see the economy improve, as we see interest rates perhaps start to creep up, you you then recognize we need to unwind these programs and start to pay down that debt that we accumulated in that crisis period. And and I would argue this is exactly the right thing we need to be doing. We need to be that influx of cash into people's pockets in this economy, or it could be very very serious economic consequences. That we need to unwind those programs as we see some some growth of economic activity. And at this point, I think we will see some continued growth at, toward the end of this year and into twenty twenty one. But uh, particularly if you look at the advanced economies of the world—the U.S., Japan, Europe—the uh, the expectations are that we will grow considerably next year. Won't make up all the ground we've lost this year, but yet be on that path back to uh, uh, perhaps you know restoring many aspects of our economy. But we have large segments of our economy that are going to struggle for likely to be significant uh, an extended period of time, a significant period of of difficult. Uh, economic headwinds ahead of us. Um, you know we've we've recovered a lot of jobs that we lost in uh, in March and April. The U.S. economy we lost about 25 million jobs. Well, we've gotten about 14 million of them back, and so that last 10, 12 million to get us back where we were, uh, those are likely to be the hardest ones to to get back into the economy. We think of the hospitality sector. You know how many people are still struggling. Uh, you know, to to make a living if, you know, the hotel industry, the travel industry, uh, recreational activities, uh, events, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, the economic impact of those kinds of uh, activities. uh, We've got a long way to go. Uh, So, uh, you know, there's all these factors, uh, I think, overlay one another. But I I think the, the headwinds for the economy are significant. I think we will continue to make progress for economic growth for the rest of this year and into next year. But, but that doesn't mean that we'll see a you know a full recovery of the U.S. economy in, in six months or perhaps even a year. But but I think we are moving in that direction, and, and that's when we start having those policy discussions of unwinding and repaying those programs. We're, we're going to have to pay for it at some point. we got to spend right. it today, but recognizing that it does have implications down the road.
1: Right. <clears throat> and then you're getting to uh, – you're talking about the pay part, and I, I'm sitting here thinking as you were explaining – or answering that question, and I asked, you know, about the uh, government's ability to be able to afford interest rate increases, and I actually probably should have asked um, how much can taxpayers afford, right? You right. know, because because the government is is the taxpayers, you know, and, sure. and, yes. and and so if we if we have to repay that or we need to, you know, work towards that. You know, when you're talking uh, six months to a year for some some level of recovery. Um, we're probably looking at a lot longer period of time, and a, and a kind of a, a long stretch possibly ahead.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right, and and I hope that as the economy does begin to recover, that we will have the political will to address that, recognizing that there were some heroic monetary and fiscal measures that took place because of the, uh, the sudden and dramatic impact of this uh, pandemic, but then recognize that out of that, there will come a time, yes, yeah, so for the, the financial reckoning uh, that will follow. Now, economic growth and uh, activity, that will absorb uh, you know, a good portion of that. And, and so you say, do we grow out of, of that debt and that deficit to some degree? but yet there are likely to be some other uh, you know consequences as well uh in in terms of uh, you know reducing that level of, of debt and and the, the deficit uh certainly that that's borne by the government because again if we don't if we don't address those things some of the impacts then start to hurt us in other areas as well such as borrowing cost to maintain the the payments on those on those uh, accounts Right. Uh, so, if our, uh, so if it costs more for the U.S. to fund that debt, that just acerbates the problem uh, So uh, moving forward, uh, as we've seen a lot of, of political cooperation of, of providing the, the stimulus and the uh, assistance The financial assistance we've seen over the last several months, uh, starting back to last spring You know, that's been fantastic Now we need to see that same political cooperation and will as we uh, as we uh, you know unwind those as we move uh, beyond this current situation, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But uh, but again, uh, I think that would be the discussion that will be appropriate as we see uh, some of the economic activity and the healing that could take place.
1: Gotcha. So a um, couple other questions uh, on the macro side of things here before we start talking about you know what do we do about all this, but. Um, mm-hmm. On the ethanol side of things, and I'm going to tie in China, and I know they're two different things, but, you know, uh, we were hoping that, you know, we could be sending a lot of ethanol to China. We were hoping that, you know, China would meet this trade one agreement. There's a lot of people that don't believe that we get there. We've they've bought a huge amount from us. Talk a little bit about where you see that going with with China and is there any opportunities on the ethanol side of things there? Because it looks like, you know, driving at least for the next year is probably going to be a lot lower. And so that's going to impact the ethanol side of things, which obviously has a direct impact on corn. So I'll, I'll let you dive into that however you want to.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, again, we talked about gasoline prices just a minute ago and how that reflects economic activity. I think U.S. gasoline demand is a great example of measuring uh, the economic recovery uh, from the uh, coronavirus in the U.S. And, and of course, it's tied directly then to uh, to ethanol production and, and then the bushels of grain uh, that go to produce that ethanol. If you look at the, the big dip that we saw in gasoline demand in this country that started in uh, in March and, and through about the, uh, the middle of April, uh, we cut gasoline demand in this country by about 50%. And then we started to recover. And with the report that uh, just came out uh, actually today from the Energy Information Administration, if gasoline demand in this country has recovered back to about where we were in February. Now, February is midwinter. And normally you would expect in July and August, that's the summer driving season. So that we came back to where we were in February is fantastic. We're still 10% below where we ought to be uh, in a normal kind of year uh, in, in terms of you know normal driving that we would do in the summer months. So a significant recovery, but we're not all the way back where we ought to be. Now, if the economy continues to improve, will we gradually get back there? Yes, I, I think so. And so in terms of ethanol demand, that's following the exact same pattern. We've cut bushels of corn devoted to make ethanol by about 10% in the uh, the 2019-20 marketing year compared to previously. Uh, You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of bushels. Uh, Will that come back next year? Not all the way. Can we come back two or three hundred million bushels? Most likely. And, and so that's, again, that's kind of an element of that recovery. So it's it's uh, certainly not just a, a V-shaped recovery, but um, if you can get in your mind for much of this discussion, take a square root symbol and flip it around backwards. So you got that flat line, and then you take a big V-dip, but the next flat line doesn't come back up to where the previous flat line was right away. I think we'll get back there over time, but that's the one that's going to take a longer period of time to get there. And I think that'll apply to gasoline demand. It's going to apply to, to employment in this country. Uh, it's going to apply to a lot of our economic indicators. And, then, of course, ethanol will follow along. Now then, taking that discussion globally, there is some indication that many of our trading partners, particularly in Asia, are, are expected to see a more rapid economic recovery than here in the United States uh the uh the expectation for economic growth in those emerging and developing economies i was talking about earlier uh we talked about it uh in uh, in, uh, in like the us and in europe we're talking about an 8% economic decline in 2020 and then a 5% rebound in 2021 so not getting us back where we were in those emerging economies the current forecast is for a 3% decline in 2020 and a 6% increase in 2021 so they're on a path to get back where they were much more quickly. And, and that's good for people that we sell stuff to. And so uh, will China meet their phase one purchasing uh, obligations you know, in the short term? I don't know. As you mentioned, they've made some rather dramatic purchases, particularly if you look at corn and wheat, mm-hmm. uh, compared to what we've seen in the last several years. Right. Uh, they're, they're right at the top of uh, the top uh, uh, buyers. Uh, in terms of the export market, when you look at uh, the corn and wheat markets, which they have not been in the last several years. And so, again, I think it will be tied to the rate at which those economies grow relative even to our own. And so if their economic activity can pick up a little faster and more broadly, that's going to be good for all the things that we produce. And whether it's corn directly or ethanol and DDGs and, and some of these other products more indirectly, It it does support that export picture from the U.S. And the other piece of that is if you look at their ability to afford our stuff and that get back to the value of the dollar Uh, with low interest rates, that is one of the factors that pressures the value of the dollar lower relative to other currencies. And so we see expectations that Europe is likely to grow more fast or or their economy more more quickly uh, than the U.S., so faster rate of growth in Europe. If China is growing more quickly uh, relative to some other economic recovery in other parts of the world, their currency strengthens relative to the U.S. dollar. And and so not only do we have the product to sell, now with a weaker dollar relative to those other currencies, our stuff gets cheaper. So it's more affordable to those economies that are seeing strength in their currencies. Uh, So, uh, again, when we meet all the targets of the phase one agreement, I, I don't know. It doesn't appear likely within the time frame that was laid out originally. But are we moving in that direction and seeing some substantial opportunities that I think will continue into the rest of this year and into the next marketing year? Where we look at our, our grain crops. Uh, yes, I, I think that would support uh, some of those uh, export projections. Uh, again, maybe short term, not reaching those targets, but a generally more favorable export picture begins to emerge if we can maintain the relations and, and the, uh, the, re- the ability then to, to have those positive uh, trading opportunities. Keeping the conversation open, keeping the relationship positive is, is absolutely critical in that environment.
1: So as you um, put all of those things together that we've talked about and we haven't really hit on um, what you kind of just did, we need to keep these relationships um, strong Right for uh, communication and just everybody getting along and try to enhance those exports. Assuming that we do all that, and, and in light of everything you've described, what what's your outlook? Um, what do you see um, that you can tell the listeners or the farmers that make you optimistic that you know maybe we uh, can see the light at the end of the tunnel? After you know, since 2013, we've had a lot of price pressure. Um, do we have hope for, for more strength than what we've seen in, in the last number of years here, or do we need to really be watching close for these opportunities, uh, when the market gets us above our break evens?
0: Yes. And yeah, yeah, I think you just touched on so many key points, uh, right there, Chris. Yes. I think there are some things that we can be optimistic about and, and some things that creating some opportunities now, particularly on the cost side. Uh, where we are continuing in this period of relatively low inflation uh, and low interest rates. What can we do to capitalize on that? If you look at what your input costs uh, would be, then if we start to build those budgets for 2021, it would be my anticipation that those, those expenses for fuel, chemicals, interest rates, uh, you know, the the other inputs, I, I think there's some downward pressure on those prices and perhaps uh, with, with farmers might have some, some negotiating, uh, power to, to, to try to, to limit any increases in those costs. If we couldn't, in fact, absolutely do something to, uh, to get those a little cheaper, uh, next year compared to, uh, you know, recent history. So, so what I think the cost picture looks to be very under control in the short term. If we can take advantage of this opportunity we have now, perhaps to, to lock some of those in. So that's on the cost side. On the price side, uh, as some things we've mentioned, I think particularly in terms of exports, uh, I think that puts us uh, in, in a better place moving into the next marketing year for 2021. Uh, the, the weak dollar certainly supports that, improving demand from some of our, from our uh, uh, foreign buyers and their economic sectors and, 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 and the, uh, their ability to, to grow their economies relative to the rest of the world, the recovery generally. Uh, from uh, from COVID-19, particularly if we were to see an an effective vaccine that gets wide adaptation, uh, that's going to boost, of course, you know, the economic response to that. So so I think price wise, we could see something moderately higher uh, than we're seeing this year. But again, I go back to that reverse square root. Uh, if that if you draw that line at four dollar corn and then drop us down on the December contract, then drop that down to three twenty. And now we've bounced back up to about three sixty. Are we going to get all the way back to four dollars? I don't know. Uh, I think a lot will depend on what soybeans do and how many acres we plant next year, and all those kinds of uh, the calculus involved with all that. But we're getting back if we get back to three eighty, three ninety. Is that something we need to be looking at? You bet. Particularly if we're able to do something on the cost. And then of course the other piece of all of that is uh, what are you doing on the production side? Are we taking advantage of the of of the yield trial data, the latest technologies, the advancements that we have, of uh, in in on the product products productivity side of the of the farm income equation, uh, to to squeeze all the yield that we capacity that we can for the the inputs that we are applying, and and just broadly speaking, uh, Danny Kleinfelter, the the founder of, of TPAP, uh talks about the five percent rule. And uh, and I think this uh, comes into play uh, at any time, but particularly in a in a challenging uh, situation like we have in agriculture today. And in the 5% rule, think about how you can apply that to your farm. Can Is there any way in the world you can cut the cost of your operation by 5%? Variable cost, total cost, I don't care. Can you limit your cost and control your cost by 5% this year, next year compared to this year? Is there anything you could do to increase your productivity by 5%? Whether it's new uh, technology in terms of uh, the, the the tillage practices, whether it's the variety selection, whatever it is, can you boost your production five percent? And then can you be a five percent better marketer, taking advantage of those uh, you know those those, those challenge those, uh, those opportunities we have in the market? They can be challenging at times, but there's also opportunity around a, a price increase or a bump or a, a spike that we see. Can you be a five percent marketer? So if you can cut cost five percent, increase your production five percent, be a five percent better marketer on a two hundred bushel corn crop, you're talking about a hundred dollars an acre that you could add to your operation. Five percent cost, five percent production, and five percent price. You can drop a break even to grow a bushel of corn from three ninety a bushel to three fifty, just using kind of general extension budgets to get pull those numbers. So that's a significant impact. By using moderate, modest improvements in the key factors around the operation of your farm. And does the current macro environment create that opportunity? I believe it does. I believe we're an environment that we can control our cost. I believe we're an environment in where we will have some pricing opportunities. I believe we are an environment that we, with the technology advancements that we've seen in the yield capability of, of the crops that we grow today, you bet. That uh, that five percent is attainable. So I think that's kind of the management mindset that uh, needs to, to permeate our decision making. Is is have uh, have our everyone involved in your farm and that management team, uh, you know, devoted to to focusing on those three key areas. And and I think uh, I think the options are there. Do that the next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, and, and I think that's how we meet the challenges of of farming in in, uh, in today's environment.
1: I really like that, and uh, as you were talking through it, um, it's it's a strategy that um, I think really adds to the bottom line. Like you said, a hundred dollars an acre, or takes you from three ninety to three fifty on the corn side of things. Uh, to make that work, um, I guess throw a, uh, throw my two cents in there is discipline uh, management. So it starts out with the plan, right? Is is putting that plan together with using those variables would be quite powerful, but then it's executing the plan. So it's actually like putting the targets in and actually making the sales, actually, you know, managing those cost numbers in, in the manner that you just described, depending on what line items they are to manage. But um, the question I have is you can plan and you can execute, um, but there needs to be accountability there because sometimes, you um, we see, and, and I'm guilty of this as a producer too, sometimes we have a plan and then we don't stick to it or we, um, you know, maybe look at it a little bit differently. How do we, how do we keep ourselves accountable to that plan and, and, and not just, you know, execute and be accountable?
0: You bet. And I think you're exactly right. One of those key points is that accountability piece. And, and that's why I think whatever that plan looks like, we took the time to build that plan and, and hopefully we've voted some discipline around executing that plan and we need to communicate that plan. And that, so the folks that drew that plan together, it's, it's not just in our heads, it's right. written down. Right. And, we, uh, and things change and, and, and evolve, but we can then revisit that plan. And, and let's say we're here at corn at 360 a bushel. And we said we were going to sell at 350. Well, how much have we sold? Have we have we done that? Well, if we have not, either based on price or what the, or a calendar date that was built into our plan, they want so much price by the time we get to the middle of September or whatever your your triggers might be. We have those those discussions of, okay, why did we or why didn't we? Uh, and and I think just that um, uh, that transparent conversation around this is what we were said we were going to do, this is where we are on that plan, and and having that conversation of why we did or why we didn't. And there may be a perfectly good reason why we didn't, but let's have that conversation well, uh, yeah. rather than just uh, assuming or didn't want to talk about it or got busy. No, someone needs to have that accountability around that. This is what we said we were going to do. Why haven't we done that? Or we did it. Was that the right thing to do? That will start shaping our plan for next year. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, an account- and, and so, again, I think that accountability piece is absolutely critical.
1: Right, and the accountability part of that's um, taking ownership and the decision-making, too. You know, um, as we speak here recording this podcast, we've seen a pretty big rally in soybeans, and I've heard a number of people make comments, well, geez, if I would have waited or if I wouldn't have sold when I did, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, if I would have this, that, and the other thing. Um part of that accountability is, is understanding why you made the decision when you made it, right? And, and of
0: course, what were the circumstances at that time? Right. And, and, and let's say you, say so you priced those, those beans for, yeah, the highest prices that we've seen going back to January, uh, which is fantastic. Um, and, and let's say you've committed all the 2020 beans that you feel like you can at this point into that rally. Well, is this creating some opportunities for you for 2021? Exactly. Uh, I I bet you've got a crop next year that you could sell. (laughs) Yep. And and maybe the one after that. Uh, Because unless things change drastically, you're going to grow some beans next year too. Exactly. Uh, And and so perhaps we can't reward the rally with more 2020 sales. I I get that. But what are you doing about next year? It's not too early to be looking at the opportunities this is creating for that seed we're going to plant next spring. Uh, And and so we're we're always – as a farmer, you're always long the market. you always got something to sell. Uh, maybe not on the November 20 contract, but uh, but you can start looking uh, further down the road at, uh, at the opportunities this is creating uh, beyond uh, the, the crop that we're growing right now.
1: Exactly. <clears throat> so uh, one other thing I want to uh, go back um, to when we were talking about some of the bigger ticket items, and I, I failed to ask this question, and I, I want to get this in. Um, quick here on South American competition is um, a real factor now in today's world. Um, can you just touch on that for a minute and, and so, sort of the timing that their uh, production sort of impacts our markets and what as producers we should be looking at in terms of timing of pricing and at least being able to pay attention to what's going on with their growing season and how that affects or could affect the market as we as we move into 2021.
0: You bet. And, and of course, that has, has been a, a major uh, change in the marketing landscape over the last, you know, 20, 30 years as South America, particularly in the soybean uh, complex, uh, it's uh, touching corn as well, but but near, not nearly as much as it has in soybeans. And, and in that, uh, you know, where the U.S. is still, we're the number one producer, we're the number one user, we're the number of exporter of corn. Uh, you know, we don't have that dominant role when it comes to soybeans, uh, given the role of South America today. And of course, what it's done is with the South American production schedule, now we have, you know, a, a major uh, influence of production on the market at two times of the year, as our crop is coming off uh, in October, November, and then as the South American crop is coming off uh, in, in February and March. And so perhaps that mutes some uh, you know, market rallies that uh, we might be able to take advantage of otherwise, uh, or some increased export competition, as uh, we would typically say that'd be a period of time when, when the U.S. market might rally. Well, if the exports are coming out from South America, uh, you know, that uh, then you know, maybe puts cold water on that particular you know, rally or whatever might be going on. And, and, uh, and I think that's why we need to keep that in mind, um, you know, given the value of uh, currencies in, in South America, uh production practices and capacities and and transportation uh, capabilities, all those things matter and they matter a lot uh, in today's world. And, and I think that now is good to have that conversation. We're seeing you know soybeans rally like they have uh, here in the short term. What would your expectation be for this significant rally in soybeans in terms of an influence on South American soybean acres uh, that are going to be going into the ground, uh, here very shortly uh, uh-huh. that again needs to be in our thinking uh one thing about high prices is that normally you get more of what you're paying for <laughs> and so is that going to be creating increased incentive uh for uh for soybean production in other parts of the world uh and, and so then that, then how does that then overlay that on your expectations for for demand and and uh, you know, other aspects of that down the road when when there's time for us to start planting soybeans and then some, uh, you know, marketing factors that we may be facing, you know, next year. Uh, looking right now at the corn to soybean ratio uh, in the U.S. for 2021. Uh, would that right now point to an increase in soybean acres in the U.S. next year relative to corn? I, I think we're going to – it does to me. Right. Uh, and again, so looking at all those kinds of relationships, but particularly with South America, they're going to respond to those prices not in April and May with their planning decisions, uh, they're going to do it in October November. and November. And so we need to be paying attention to that. You bet.
1: Exactly. Appreciate those comments. And then um, as we get close to the end here, I just want to ask, is there anything that I haven't asked either on the uh, first on the, on the macro perspective and then kind of have you wrap up with anything that, that you think is pertinent that as producers, as we head into harvest, um, what should we have in the top of our mind? And what are some of the key things we need to be looking for?
0: You know, I think just in the general uh, overall macro uh, economic discussion, you know, we talk about measures. Watching, you know, we watch employment and inflation and interest rate, the value of the dollar, and GDP. Those are all you know big numbers that you know most of us can can quote pretty quickly, or at least know which direction they're going. Right. But I think another uh, factor that's going to influence the growth of the U.S. and global economy uh, over the next six months and even into next year uh, that matter a lot. Are other economic measures that we don't really have a, a strong handle on. And I'd put those under the classification of, in the current coronavirus COVID situation that we're in right now, in the just-because-we-can-doesn't-mean-we-will category. Uh, and, and some of those parts of the economy are coming to come back more slowly. I can go out and eat in a restaurant right now. Maybe some are limited in capacity. I can go get it on an airplane, and I can fly anywhere in the country right now. But am I? Just because I can doesn't mean I will, right. or at least to the level that we were before. And so I think the confidence of the U.S. consumer and, and participants in the economy to, to then have go out and do the things that now we, we can do, will we do those things? And, and so I think that's going to be a slower process. And so I think that will slow down much of the economic growth uh, as we as we recover. And as, yes, we get this uh, virus tamped down and under control and we move forward, it'll come. But but I think that confidence piece is, is one that uh, will, we need to factor in uh, moving forward. And, and and then again, when we get back, I think then all that boils down on, on the farm side. Uh, just to reiterate, I think your basic comments, Chris, all of these things, it, it takes time. Somebody's got to pay attention to, to the time it takes to implement a lot of the things that we've talked about and incorporate those into our management tools and strategies and and, and the things that we're going to do. It it takes time to do that. It takes discipline then to carry out those plans that we talked about, and it takes communication and relationships to share those with our management team, to share that with our key input suppliers, to share our, our, our goals and our challenges with our key customers, because how can we add value to what our customer is doing? And, and will that create some opportunity for that, for that nickel or a dime on the basis? Uh, that, that gives me that, that 5% higher price that I really need to, to achieve my uh, my farming goals for next year. Again, those relationships and how can I add value? What do my customers need that I can perhaps provide in, in a way that I haven't been doing in the past? So time, discipline, relationships, and communication, I think are absolutely key.
1: All excellent advice and, and comments. And, and uh, Mark, I really appreciate your comments and your time today, and uh, definitely want to do this again if you're up for that.
0: You bet. It'd be great to, to check back in uh, some of the things that we've talked about here, how are we doing on those uh, those indicators and factors, and especially as we start to shape and make plans for uh, 2021. In a lot of ways, it's going to be good to get 2020 behind us. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and certainly I think there are some things, there's going to be challenges ahead, but certainly I think there's going to be some opportunity as well. And if we can be positioned and, and ready for that, I, I think uh, I think it will be rewarded as we move into next year.
1: You bet. You bet. Well, uh, look forward to the next time. And, and, Mark, thanks a lot again for this conversation. Really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely, Chris. Good to be with you. Thank yep. You.
1: So that's uh, Mark Welch, uh, Texas A&M Grain Marketing Economist. And, everybody, uh, thank you for listening to the Ag View Pitch. And we will catch you next time.